Welcome to Moyer's Environmental Dialogues, Ocean River Shields of Achilles, with your host, Dr. Rob Moyer. Find out what others are doing and what you can do to create a greener and blue planet Earth. Now, here's Dr. Rob Moyer. Welcome. Today, we're talking about sea run brook trout and salters of Massachusetts. And with me is Mike Hopper, president of Sea Run Brook Trout Coalition. Hello, Mike. Hi, Rob. How are you? Excellent. Where are you calling us from today? I'm calling you from Salisbury, Connecticut, <clears throat> which is in the northwestmost corner of Connecticut, out in the Berkshires. So are you near a cold stream brook or something? Well, we're right on the banks of the Housatonic River, uh, right below Great Falls. So that's about 100 yards from my office. And do you get herring up those falls? We do not uh, because of a series of dams uh, down on the lower Housatonic. Uh, it's interesting to note that there used to be Atlantic salmon that ran all the way up here, but uh, they've been extirpated since the 1860s because of dams. Bummer. So um, you're here to talk about uh, sea brook trout, or sea run brook. I mistyped it here. Um, sea run brook trout. And um, what is a sea-run brook trout? Let's talk a little bit about their natural history, and then I'm looking forward to hearing more about the history of the management fishing. Sure. Uh, sea-run brook trout are a life history variation of normal brook trout, eastern brook trout, which are our native species here in New England. And the life history variation of sea-run brook trout uh, allows them to go out to sea just like uh, Atlantic or Pacific salmon, and live in the marine environment um, during the uh, fall, winter, and spring, and then they ascend the rivers in the late spring or early summer when the bays and estuaries are becoming too warm uh, for their tolerance level. So they're a life history variation that exists from their historic range here in the United States is from Maine down to Long Island. So life history variation. It sounds like some sea, some brook trout stay in the freshwater, and some of the same population choose to go into the ocean. Or are that's that correct. Population? Yeah, something like twenty-five to forty percent of every uh, coastal stream that doesn't have barriers on it, uh, you'll see twenty-five to forty percent of those brook trout uh, going out into the marine environment where they grow very quickly. And, uh, and then come back in the late spring, early summer, and use the rivers as a thermal refuge as the bays and estuaries heat up. Brook trout are very intolerant of warm, warm or hot water. And uh, so as these bays and estuaries heat up uh, above, say, 65 degrees, the brook trout seek out um, a cold water refuge, which are these freshwater streams emptying into bays and estuaries. And why are the streams cooler than the adjoining embayments nearby? Well, it depends on the hydrology of the area. Um, down on Cape Cod, where I grew up, and down on Long Island, uh, these streams are basically called spring seep streams, and they're fed by groundwater, uh, which is a constant, uh, constant water temperature throughout the year, usually in the, uh, in the high 50s. Um, up in Maine, where they have a lot of sea-run brook trout, it's a little bit different. Those are what's called pre-stone streams, and they're principally runoff streams. 
but they can also be fed by springs uh, along the, the course of the stream. But on Long Island and Cape Cod, uh, it's these upwellings of groundwater that create these spring seep streams. Uh, also out in Martha's Vineyard, they have this same type of um, hydrology. So this uh, upwelling of groundwater is a constant temperature, um, even through the summer and uh, even through droughts, these streams will still maintain very cool temperatures. Yes, the Ocean River Institute was working with the Westfield River out in central Massachusetts, and they managed to have salmon there because, as you said, the aquifer keeps the river water cool when the outdoor temperature gets really hot. And it must therefore mean that out there and also on the Cape and other areas, that if communities draw down their aquifers too much, it could harm the sea-run brook trout. Absolutely, and a lot of other species as well. Uh, uh, alewives and blueback herring are also dependent upon stream flows uh, for maintaining nursery habits, habitats. So it's a number of different uh, critters out there that, that are reliant on uh, these uh, groundwater-fed streams. So I understand that these brook trout, when they spend time in the ocean, they come back, you know, bigger and more salmon-shaped, maybe a little humpy on the front or something? That's exactly right. Um, basically, in the marine environment, they have an unlimited food source uh, in grass shrimp and mummy chugs and things like that. So their non-migratory brethren, particularly in the wintertime, don't grow at all. But what we've documented on a number of streams here in Massachusetts uh, is that the fish using the marine environment, the brook trout using the marine environment in the wintertime, uh, have uh, quite a bit of growth throughout the winter and come back in the spring as a very robust fish. And, yeah, they usually have big shoulders. They're uh, bright, kind of like a salmon, um, and uh, they're, they're a much bigger fish than their non-migratory brethren that spent the winter in the stream. Okay, so... These are wonderful fish that must have been important to people. Tell us a bit about the history of the sea-run brook trout. Sure. Um, well, they're actually a pretty iconic fish for New England because they represent our first uh, sport fishery here in New England. And that's documented all the way back to before the American Revolution. There was a very wealthy uh, Boston merchant named John Rowe. Uh, John Rowe owned one of the uh, ships that uh, the Boston Tea Party raided, and uh, he had land holdings from the Berkshires all the way down through Duxbury and Plymouth, and he was an avid angler. And we know that, uh, that he fished the streams from Cape Cod and Plymouth uh, because of his diary. He kept a very detailed diary, and he often went fishing with uh, merchant friends of his or uh, people in the colonial militia, and he documented all those fishing trips. Uh, for instance, um, right before the American Revolution, he went down and fished a stream called Monument Brook um, down in Plymouth, and he caught some really big sea-run brook trout. They were 18 inches, which mm. is pretty much about a three-pound brook trout, and he wrote about them in his journal. Now, the listeners out there may wonder why they don't know the Monument River. That's because it was uh, turned into the Cape Cod Canal. So uh, it obliterated the river when they built the Cape Cod Canal in the uh, early 20th century. Um, and, and then some other notable other... anglers were um, Grover Cleveland uh, had a house in Falmouth, 
and fished the Mashpee and Quashinet rivers for sea run brook trout. Mm. Uh, and uh, another gentleman uh, that uh, predates Grover Cleveland was Theodore Lyman III. Uh, Theodore Lyman was a U.S. senator. He was an aide-de-camp to General Meade during the Civil War. Uh, he was also one of Massachusetts' first fisheries commissioners. And at the end of the Civil War, he was hired by the Commonwealth of Massachusetts to go out and to figure out why a lot of the, um, a lot of the stocks of sea run brook trout, alewives, and herring were, um, were kind of collapsing. And it was basically because of impassable dams had been put up on streams uh, to run mills and also because of uh, cranberry cultivation. Um, usually they built these cranberry bogs right on trout streams. Um, it's interesting to note that before the Industrial Revolution in Massachusetts, there were somewhere between 70 and 90 streams in Massachusetts that had uh, populations of sea run brook trout. And sea run brook trout are our native trout species of New England, along with Atlantic salmon. Um, they're actually a char, uh, but that's uh, a distinction that mm. most people wouldn't really care about. Uh, but they were uh, found all the way up from uh, Truro on Cape Cod. There were streams uh, in Wellfleet. Uh, there were lots in Falmouth and Mashpee. Out on the vineyard, we still have populations of wild brook trout as well as on the north and south shores. So they were a very common species um, in our coastal waters in Massachusetts before, the, uh, before we started building dams on our coastal streams. But it's interesting that you were telling us about the first fishermen catching lots in Monument Brook or River right, Monument, that were so yep. close to um, the Red Brook. So that seems like that there's a particular hot spot for um, brook trout in New England. Absolutely. Uh, and the same can be said for Long Island. And the reason that it was a hot spot was because of these spring seep streams that we talked about earlier. Um, these ground-fed streams are really uh, an ideal habitat for uh, brook trout because of their cold water. And um, the coastal streams of the Upper Cape and Falmouth and Mashpee, uh, out on the vineyard and in the Wareham area, were really ideal habitat for a sea-run brook trout. Um, <clears throat> that all began to change in the 1830s and 40s when they started erecting more dams and Really, after the end of the Civil War, cranberry culture on the Upper Cape uh, and the Wareham-Plymouth area really kind of took off, and that uh, really destroyed a lot of great trout streams um, in the name of industry. So what we have left is we have nine streams in Massachusetts with known salter brook trout in them. Um, there are three on Cape Cod, and then there are six in Wareham, uh, but that's down from 70 to 90 streams uh, at the time of European contact. So we've really lost a lot of habitat in the last um, 350 years. And it's just not possible for cranberrying and brook trout to coexist because they have to dike the water and stuff? That's correct. Um, when, you, when you turn a, a, a coastal stream into a cranberry bog, uh, the first thing you do is channelize it, and you remove all the uh, trees and, and uh, shrubbery along, uh, along the riparian zones, and uh, you really alter the stream. You basically straighten it, 
and then you run all these canals off of it to irrigate the cranberries, and uh, it, it really takes a stream, uh, it takes the natural meander out of the stream and just channelizes the whole thing. So, yes, uh, cranberry culture and, and brook trout do not really go together very well. Well, Theodore Lightman is a great naturalist. There's a wonderful story. Well, he went to Harvard and topped his class and got picked up by Louis Agassiz as one of his disciples and, and workers. And the naturalists hated working for Agassiz in the sense that they had to give up their collections to Agassiz's Museum of Comparative Zoology. It was a great story of a naturalist out in Concord watching a, a snapping turtle trying to hatch its, you know, lay its eggs and he goes out every night and watches it, and finally it hatches. And then the naturalist has to take the eggs by horse to Concord, by train to the MCZ at Harvard, and raps on the door, and Theodore Lyman, Ted Lyman, comes out and takes the eggs into the collection of uh, Louis Agassiz so they can do the, uh, the natural history studies of it and stuff. And apparently Lyman is responsible for the first uh, fish ladder in the region. Yeah, uh, when he was hired as uh, fisheries commissioner, uh, he basically toured all of eastern Massachusetts and quickly ascertained that the reason that these uh, fish were declining was because of lack of up and downstream fish passage. So uh, not only was he responsible for the early fish ladders in Massachusetts, but he was also very interested in fish culture. And he and an early industrialist named Samuel Tisdale uh, actually built the first trout hatchery in Massachusetts in Maple Springs. Um, but you're absolutely correct about Theodore Lyman. He was a really uh, interesting early environmentalist, and uh, he was a student and disciple of, of Louis Agassiz, as you said. And uh, Louis Agassiz often went down to Red Brook with Theodore Lyman, uh, Red Brook's down in Wareham, Massachusetts, and their interests were really, they were really Renaissance men because uh, not only were they interested in the sea run brook trout and all the different fish that lived in the brooks down there, but they were also interested in archaeology. And there were a lot of um, shell middens around Red Brook. And uh, Theodore Lyman kept a very detailed journal, um, which the Lyman family still has. And in that, he talks about uh, Louis Agassiz and and himself, Theodore Lyman, uh, digging in these shell middens. And oh, great. What they, the other interesting thing that they discovered on Red Brook was, up until that point, um, uh, people thought of river herring as one species, meaning that blueback herring and, and alewives were one species. And it was actually um, down in the Wareham area that Louis Agassiz and Theodore Lyman discovered that actually they were two different species, and that blueback herring tended live more in and spawn more in, in rivers, slow sections of rivers, whereas alewives utilize ponds as, as spawning in nursery, nursery area. Mm. So uh, they had a very uh, tight bond long after um, Theodore Lyman left uh, Harvard University, and actually in the next generation of both families, the families intermarried. Which families? Uh, the Agassiz family and, and uh, Lyman family in the next generation um, uh, intermarried. So uh, right. I'm not sure if it was exactly Theodore Lyman's kids, but either his kids or one of his brother's uh, children intermarried into the Agassiz family. Yeah. Um, we're talking with uh, 
Mike Hopper about the uh, Seabrook Trout and Salters of Massachusetts. And we'll be right back after this break for more. Be sure to friend us on Facebook. You can do it right now. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for us at keyword Voice America. Connecting local stewardship with global support, the Ocean River Institute is a nonprofit organization dedicated to helping people and groups make a difference where they live and work. We believe that many environmental issues can best be addressed by people taking action in their own communities and regions. It's not the large national entities, but the small, localized, or newly formed groups that often need help to achieve their goals. That's where the Ocean River Institute comes in. We maintain a network of eco-stewards and ORI partners, connecting them with resources and services to help them maximize their impact, expand their capacity, and weather unexpected setbacks. ORI actions and events offer opportunities to make a difference, to go the distance, and you can volunteer to be an ORI eco-steward. To discover more, visit us online at www.oceanriver.org. That's www.oceanriver.org. The Ocean River Institute is a 501c3 nonprofit organization dedicated to helping people and groups make a difference where they live and work through environmental stewardship and science. Now there's a new destination for video content, voiceamerica.tv, just like our radio channels and so much more. Voice America Variety, Health and Wellness, Business, Sports, Green Talk, Power Up Motorsports, and 7th Wave Network now have their own video channel components. Plus, check out exclusive programming, including movies, music, educational courses, science and history, current events, and short features. High-definition, premier-quality programs available 24-7, voiceamerica.tv. If you think you've seen online TV like this before, let us surprise you. This is the Voice America Green Living Channel. Spread the green. You're listening to Moyer's Environmental Dialogues. To participate in today's discussion, you're welcome to call into the program at 1-888-346-9141. Again, that's 1-888-346-9141. You can also send an email to rob at oceanriver.org. Now, back to Dr. Rob Moyer. Hi, we're talking with Mike Hopper, who is president of Sea Run Brook Trout Coalition. And, and Mike, you were, before the break, saying that uh, Louis Agassiz with Ted Lyman uh, figured out that blueback uh, herring and alewives were separate species. And today we have a problem of the fishermen in the Gulf of Maine and along the coast of New England not being able to distinguish between the uh, river herring, which are the bluebacks and the alewives, and the sea herring. And so, to the point that they're not doing enough to manage them properly so that the Ocean River Institute is suing the government to insist that if we win, the management decisions will go back to the New England Fisheries Management Council to better manage and, you know, put better monitoring in place and so forth so that um, they can tell if they're catching, you know, to reduce the take of these various herring. Uh, also, these herring are important to 
other fish that eat them, and therefore they shouldn't be managed for just maximum sustainable yield. But I'm going off on a tangent here. If people want to know more about the Ocean River Institute's herring efforts, um, www.oceanriver.org. Okay, let's go back to Red Brook, right? Yeah, that's right. Red Brook down in Wareham, Mass. Um, Red Brook's an interesting stream because the Lyman family, starting in the 1870, basically preserved the entire stream. Uh, Theodore Lyman was very smitten with the stream. He uh, learned about it through Samuel Tisdale, uh, an industrialist uh, in Wareham who was interested in fish culture and preserving uh, sea-run brook trout in Massachusetts. And uh, as I said, he was so smitten with the stream that um, he basically started buying up sections of the stream uh, in, the 19, in the 1870s, and that continued well up into the 1950s when they, uh, by that time, they had bought uh, 600, and I believe it's tw- 627 acres, and basically preserved the entire stream from White Island Pond all the way down to Buttermilk Bay. And what's important about that is, as other streams in southeastern Massachusetts were being developed uh, into cranberry bogs and dams were being erected, this stream kind of um, uh, was completely preserved without any dams on it. There was a little bit of early cranberry cultivation going on when Theodore Lyman bought it, but uh, he put an end to that and preserved the whole stream for the... Uh, for the next three generations within the Lyman family. Excuse me. Um, a little bit, bit more history about Theodore Lyman. They, were a Bo- they are a Boston Brahmin family that made their money in the China trade. And um, they were, there was a mayor of Boston that was a Lyman. There was a president of Harvard University. So he had the uh, financial ability to, to buy up this stream and preserve it. And the only other stream uh, that went through a similar preservation was the Mashpee River down, in, uh, down on the Cape in uh, Mashpee. That was also uh, bought up. But um, what we get by having these streams preserved is, is basically what preserving, preserving these streams allowed us to understand what the sea-run brook trout were really like uh, before the Industrial Revolution. And uh, it's, it's just been uh, a great gift to all the people in the Commonwealth um, now, that the, uh, now that Red Brook is uh, part of the public domain. Uh, in 1990, the Lyman family decided that they wanted to divest of the Red Brook property, but they didn't want to see it go to development. So with the help of Trout Unlimited, they brokered a deal where uh, 200 acres went to the trustees of the reservation, and the 426 acres above that was sold to Mass Fish and Wildlife as a wildlife conservation area. Uh, and the money from that went to the trustees to form a, um, a trust uh, or a fund for preserving it. So now anybody can go to the Theodore Lyman Reserve, that's the name of the property, uh, that's managed by uh, the trustees of the reservation. And I encourage people to go down and uh, see the stream themselves. It's open uh, free of charge, and there are trails all through it. And it's just a wonderful, uh, wonderful property with uh, lady slippers in a uh, scrub oak and pitch pine forest, um, pretty much the way it looked 
at the time of European contact. The area really hasn't changed very much. So it's a wonderful, wonderful property, and I encourage people to go down and see it. Yes, and if people want to know more about that or your work, uh, where can they go? Well, they can go to our website. Um, actually, if they just Google Sea Run Brook Trout, uh, they'll, on the first Google page, they'll see the Sea Run Brook Trout Coalition, and we also have a Facebook page, uh, which gets updated a couple of times a week. But our website address is www.crunbrookie, and that's B-R-O-O-K-I-E dot org. Um, and they can learn about uh, our partnerships with UMass, U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, uh, the Division of Ecological Restoration here in Massachusetts, um, Trout Unlimited, uh, the trustees of the reservation, and a lot of the other groups that we uh, work with to, uh, to preserve sea run brook trout and also to do scientific, uh, uh, scientific surveys uh, of sea run brook trout throughout the range from Long Island all the way up to Maine. So that's a great place to learn more about the uh, Red Brook uh, Reserve of three, uh, 638 acres you ended up with, it sounds like. Uh, yes, that's correct. Um, there's 200 acres that's owned by the trustees of the reservation, and then the 400, I believe it's 426 acres above that, uh, is a wildlife management area that's managed by Mass Fish and Wildlife. So you get a combined big area, which is just fabulous. Yeah, and what's interesting is um, the up above that, right at um, White Island Pond, there were what was called the Century Bogs, which are owned by A.D. Makepeace, the biggest cranberry grower in southeastern Mass. And um, A.D. Makepeace has just sold those bogs uh, to the Commonwealth, and they're going to be going through a complete restoration uh, starting in two years, it's basically a six-year plan after that. So the, the entire upper reaches of uh, Red Brook up above the wildlife management area are going to be restored back to uh, uh, what they were, which was uh, a pitch pine scrub oak forest. Uh, I think they're going to be planting some white cedars up there as well. So there's a big, big restoration effort that's going to take place uh, starting in two years on the upper reaches of, of the river. And that's very exciting. It is to have, you know, all 4.5 miles of that trout stream that goes into Buttermilk Bay preserved and protected. Yeah, it's interesting to note that um, uh, with the trustees, that's their uh, most used piece of property in southeastern Mass. There are a lot of schools that take field trips there. Uh, Mass Maritime has an ongoing... Uh, research project going there for its students. Uh, it's, it's a great piece of property, and as I said, it's, it's free and open to the public, so I encourage people to go down there and, and check it out. There's a beautiful beach down there, uh, as well as the stream itself and, and trails along it. Can you go angling? Oh, yeah. There's, uh, it's, you can fish for sea run brook trout down there. It's catch and release, artificials only. And uh, also at the mouth of the stream in the springtime and in the fall, there's good striped bass fishing. So if you go down at the uh, mouth of where Red Brook dumps into Buttermilk Bay in late May or June, uh, you can go down there and, and catch some, some very nice striped bass. I've, I've seen striped bass caught down there up to 
just about 25 or 30 pounds. So some good-sized stripers to be had down there in the springtime. Nice. Uh, would you like to talk now about more of the, the bioregion that the Sea Run Brook Trout Coalition works with? Absolutely. Um, as I said, the historic range of Sea Run Brook Trout here in the United States is from Maine all the way down in Long Island uh, and all the way down uh, the Cape. Um, what we're doing as an organization right now is we're working with us, several other groups, including Trout Unlimited and U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, to survey um, what streams have populations of brook trout that are blocked from using the marine environment either by dams or inoperable culverts. Uh, there's quite a number of these streams. Um, they exist on Long Island, Martha's Vineyard, of course here in Massachusetts, New Hampshire, and Maine. And over the next few years, we're going to be uh, creating a priority list of stream restoration projects which is really the core of what the Sea Run Brook Trout Coalition is about, is uh, restoring uh, con uh, connectivity of these streams that have dams and culvert issues on them. Uh, and as a matter of fact, just last week I was down on Martha's Vineyard, and there's a great stream down there called Mill Brook that has a population of brook trout that are blocked from using the marine environment by a series of ponds including the Mill Pond, which is a 200-year-old pond, uh, pretty much just above head of tide. And uh, the town has been thinking, the town of West Hisbury out on the vineyard has been thinking about dredging this pond, but uh, I was invited out there by Prudy Burt, who's on the West Hisbury Conservation Commission, to lay out another possibility, which is stream restoration. Um, so what the Sea Run Brook Trout Coalition would really like to do is to um, look at connectivity issues on streams and work towards restoration of these streams by uh, removing dams if they don't serve a purpose anymore uh, or uh, replacing culverts where uh, fish passage is, is uh, impossible um, because of uh, the culverts. So that's really the core of what we do. We're really a, a stream restoration uh, oriented organization. Yeah, the run restoration. Exactly. And um, by uh, restoring connectivity of these streams, uh, it not only benefits brook trout, but it also benefits a lot of other species uh, that are in trouble, like American eel, um, alewives, blueback herring. You were talking about uh, both species of herring earlier. Um, I'm 52 years old, and I grew up down on the Cape, and in the 70s, one of the great rituals we had in the springtime was to go out uh, to the Herring River in Wellfleet uh, and go catch a bunch of alewives, and we used to smoke them. And now, with what, what looks like might be a permanent ban on, on alewives, that part of our cultural history is now lost um, because of uh, over-harvesting of, of alewives and blueback herring through the ocean herring fishery. So, um, unfortunately, uh, we've, we're really at a loss culturally um, because these fish have been over-harvested and the runs on all the New England rivers have really kind of collapsed compared to where they were uh, 30 years ago. So, uh, you know, two, two ways of, of stopping that are, one, as you said earlier, to... Uh, 
uh, improve monitoring on the high seas so we're not intercepting alewives and blueback herring, but also to restore stream connectivity and remove dams um, and repair culverts so they can uh, utilize their, uh, their natal streams for spawning, their natal streams and ponds for, for spawning purposes. That's right, and the Sea-Run Brook Col Trout Coalition is the kind of place that it all begins with. It's because groups like yours and watershed groups up and down the coastline have done so much to uh, try to restore uh, migratory fish to their watersheds that it, it becomes a strong voice to focus on getting the fishermen offshore to get their act together. So it, you've got to have both, but it's certainly... Uh, we're certainly able to make progress with the commercial fishermen and the recreational fishermen. Um, well, it's mostly commercial fishermen for herring um, because of the savviness of all these citizens that have been working on watershed groups and uh, like the Sea Run Brook Trout Coalition. Yeah, that's absolutely. And uh, hopefully we'll be able to turn the tide on this. Um, uh, one of, as I said, one of the great thrills of springtime growing up on the Cape was to go, uh, go cast a, a basket full of herring and have them smoked, uh, which we did right in our backyard. And these fish are also important in the, uh, in the marine environment because they help feed bluefish and striped bass. Uh, and, you know, they're a very, very important cog in the, in the web of life uh, off our uh, New England shore. So it's, it's really important that we stop this decline of, of alewives and blueback herring and begin to turn it around so we can see the kind of landings that we saw, you know, 20, 30 years ago. Yes, and it was great. The way, now, you earlier said that the Red Brook was going to have more land uh, in protection. Does that mean more fish? Uh, yes, it does. Um, by restoring the upper headwaters, it'll be restoring some spawning habitat for blueback herring, which are a river spawner. Uh, so, yes, it, it will have a positive impact that way. Great. Just, the existing ones don't just spread, but actually they'll be able to have more fish. That's, those are the kinds of things that will enable us to have, you know, smoked herring once again. <laughs> We're going to be right back after this break. Get the news on our shows and other happenings by following us on Twitter. Find us at VoiceAmericaTRN or Twitter.com forward slash VoiceAmericaTRN. Connecting local stewardship with global support, the Ocean River Institute is a nonprofit organization dedicated to helping people and groups make a difference where they live and work. We believe that many environmental issues can best be addressed by people taking action in their own communities and regions. It's not the large national entities, but the small, localized, or newly formed groups that often need help to achieve their goals. That's where the Ocean River Institute comes in. We maintain a network of eco-stewards and ORI 
partners, connecting them with resources and services to help them maximize their impact, expand their capacity, and weather unexpected setbacks. ORI Actions and Events offer opportunities to make a difference, to go the distance, and you can volunteer to be an ORI Eco Steward. To discover more, visit us online at www.oceanriver.org. That's www.oceanriver.org. The Ocean River Institute is a 501c3 nonprofit organization dedicated to helping people and groups make a difference where they live and work through environmental stewardship and science. This is the Voice America Green Living Channel. Spread the green. You're listening to Moyer's Environmental Dialogues. To participate in today's discussion, you're welcome to call into the program at 1-888-346-9141. Again, that's 1-888-346-9141. You can also send an email to rob at oceanriver.org. Now, back to Dr. Rob Moyer. Hi, I'm talking today with Mike Hopper. He's president of Sea Run Brook Trout Coalition, and I happen to be president of the Ocean River Institute, and there is no critter that better penultimate, you know, ocean river, river, bleh, river critter than, uh, say, the Sea Run Brook Trout, because it, like so many, depends on both a healthy ocean and healthy watersheds, responsible human actions, and good stewardship in the ocean and along the rivers. Uh, Mike, you are looking at other uh, watersheds and rivers than just Red Brook, right? Oh, yeah. Uh, the uh, dam removal on Red Brook is, has been completed. Uh, we took out four small dams over a period of four years, uh, ending in 2009. Um, and we have another, uh, uh, we have quite a few other projects that we're looking at, and they're, uh, some are out on the vineyards, some are up on Cape Cod. Uh, some are down on Long Island. One in particular that we're pretty excited about is uh, in South Wellfleet on Cape Cod in the National Seashore. There's a small stream up there called Fresh Brook that uh, actually uh, back in the uh, 19th century was called Trout Brook. And because of a culvert when they built Route 6 and a small dam that they put in, uh, Sea Run Brook Trout have been extirpated from it. And it's pretty much completely forgotten in the collective consciousness of the town. But we know it had brook trout because uh, the artist Frank Benson, who was a very famous artist um, in the late 1800s, actually fished it and wrote about it in his journal. Um, So we're working with uh, Tim Smith, who's the restoration ecologist for the Cape Cod National Seashore, on bringing forth a plan to restore that. Uh, There is another stream down on the vineyard, as I mentioned, Mill Brook. Uh, That's another stream that we're um, talking to the Conservation Commission of West Tisbury about possibly restoring. Uh, Down on Long Island, we're working with uh, two of our, uh, two of the Sea Run Brook Trout Coalition uh, Board of Directors in restoring several streams down there. So we're looking at the whole region from Maine all the way down to Long Island and uh, trying to prioritize where we can best uh, put our efforts in stream restoration. 
And these sea-run brook trout are really the canary in the coal mine because they need such high water quality, uh, cold water, high dissolved oxygen, that um, if you're restoring streams uh, to bring back sea-run brook trout, uh, all the other species that, that use the, these rivers, American eels, uh, alewives, blueback herring, they'll all benefit from these restoration projects as well. Um, so, yeah, we're, we're working hard on identifying uh, a number of streams within the region for restoration. And we do that with our partners at U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, uh, Trout Unlimited, uh, Division of Ecological Restoration here. So we have, uh, if you go to our website, you'll see all our partners listed on our, uh, on our front page. And on your website, you can, people can subscribe to get updates of what's new, right? That's correct. Uh, we, have an, we have two ways of updating our members. Uh, we have uh, a, news and, uh, a news page, which is the last page on our website, and also through our Facebook connection, our Facebook web page, uh, we're constantly uh, updating our members on uh, where we're giving presentations, uh, if we're doing site recons with Division of Ecological Restoration, we'll put those up on uh, both our web page and our Facebook page. So, uh, yeah, there's a lot of activity on, on both pages. So I, I recommend that people go to either our Facebook page or our website page to see what we're up to. Too often it gets oversimplified to thinking that it's all because of dams. And if we didn't have dams, we would have all these fish. But... Um, Often, sometimes the dam doesn't have to be removed, but there's a less expensive way to uh, help the fish get around the dam. And are there other things that people can do to help with the uh, life of sea-run brook trout? Yeah, I would uh, recommend that the listeners that want to get involved on a grassroots level, uh, if they live in eastern Massachusetts, they can become members of their local watershed groups. Uh, there's some very active ones. Uh, a very important one in southeastern Mass is the Coalition for Buzzards Bay. Uh, they're, uh, they're not only a watershed advocacy group, but they're also involved in land preservation. So uh, Mark Russman, the president of the Coalition for Buzzards Bay, is really doing a, a fabulous job of um, not only working to remove uh, barriers, dams, and that sort of thing, but also in preserving riparian zones along streams. And uh, Brendan Annette, who's his VP of Land Preservation, has done remarkable work in the uh, last three years of preserving uh, riparian zones along streams in southeastern Mass. But there are great watershed groups um, all over the region. Uh, the North and South River Watershed Group, uh, they're doing gr good work uh, out in Westport, Massachusetts, the Westport uh, Watershed Alliance, the Westport River uh, Alliance is also doing some great work. So uh, I recommend that the listeners join a, a local watership, uh, water, uh, excuse me, yeah. that they should join their, their local advocacy groups uh, within, their, within their region. There's actually a group called Alewives Anonymous. Yeah, I've, I've heard of them. Uh, there are a number of groups uh, cropping up to uh, help, you know, help preserve uh, alewives and, and blueback herring, and we really can't do enough for these fish right now because if you look at the numbers of how they've declined in the last 
20 years, 20, 30 years, it, it's really pretty alarming. And uh, your organization is Ocean River Institute is really doing a lot to, uh, to turn the tide on that and bring these fish back. Yeah, and we do it in concert with um, a coalition of all kinds of groups. We have, there actually is a herring alliance, uh, which is, if you, if you uh, Google herring alliance, you'll see, uh, I think, at least 47 different organizations that goes up, down into New Jersey and up to Maine uh, that are, we're all trying to coordinate because we share the same interests in um, seeing more fish, seeing healthier environments. Yeah, coalitions is really what it's all about. I don't think any one single organization uh, can surmount uh, all the problems that these fish face, either through har- over-harvesting in the ocean or uh, problems with uh, dams and culverts, that sort of thing. But what we've learned uh, with working with groups like Trout Unlimited, um, the trustees of the reservation, Coalition for Buzzards Bay, is that you really need to have a very broad uh, coalition of organizations that are all working towards uh, one common cause. Yes. Yes. And, you know, keep your eyes open in your own community. Um, Mike was talking about how important the water temperature is and how that uh, there needs to be aquifers, there needs to be groundwater around the river to recharge it and cool it. So it's important that we don't draw down our aquifers and take too much water out of the land and send it down the sewer systems into the ocean or something. And it's important that temperatures, the rivers stay cool. So if you were fortunate to have land near a brook, um, it's valuable to have trees that shade that brook in the summertime. Yeah, and the other big problem that we're facing with our estuaries and our streams is nitrogen loading. And, Rob, there's no better person to speak about that than you. So do you want to add a comment about nitrogen loading in the... Uh, yes. The Ocean River Institute has been alarmed, was alarmed to find that uh, at least 40 dolphins a year were dying in the Indian River Lagoon on the east side of Florida because the water was so polluted. And Indian River Lagoon, much like Nantucket Sound, is a shallow, sandy uh, body of water that gets very warm in the summertime, and it's during the warm period that the slimy algae and diatoms that cause, not diatoms, dinoflagellates that cause uh, red tide, most want to bloom. They're most hungry for growth. And so the Ocean River Institute has started a process of asking people not to fertilize their lawns when the blooming critters want to bloom. We want to be slime busters and stop feeding them when they're hungry. So for the for um, Florida, that means during the summer rain. So we put in a ban in one county, Martin County, from uh, June 1st to September 30th. You know, fertilize before and after, but not during. And at that time, there are heavy rains, so it all goes into the ocean, and it doesn't help your lawn. So you can have a green lawn and cleaner waters. And on, we're working, we're just beginning work now with communities on Cape Cod and around Nantucket Sound to uh, see if we can have a ban on fertilizing. Take the month of May off and half of June from fertilizing your lawn, and uh, you should have a green lawn, and there'll be less nitrogen and phosphorus uh, that's being washed into the waterways that's causing all this eutrophication and dead zones and so forth. So that's a quick, um, and for more information, oceanriver.org. Thank you, Mike, for letting me talk about that for a minute. 
Um, well, it's important not only for the health of our rivers and estuaries, but also for our commercial fisheries. Um, this nitrogen loading that's taking place in the estuaries down on Cape Cod ultimately is going to have a very negative impact, impact on shellfish. And anybody that's visited Cape Cod knows how important the shellfish industry is to Cape Cod. So uh, maintaining clean rivers and estuaries is, uh, is important economically to these areas as well. Absolutely. The oyster businesses that have grown up in the last decade is phenomenal. You now have so many oysters to choose from in restaurants from all over, you know, that are being raised all over Cape Cod and Massachusetts. And um, this and other healthy seafood depends on healthy, clean waters that aren't slimed up with uh, nitrogen. Nitrogen is the worst pollution of the oceans in the world. There's nothing causing more damage to more critters and uh, depriving us of more healthy seafood than nitrogen. Um, but we're running out of time, to, uh, Mike, and I want to thank you for uh, uh, telling us about uh, Seabrook sea Brook Trout. And um, uh, how about some words in conclusion? Uh, well, as I said, I, you know, I encourage people to join their local watershed associations. Uh, that's probably the best way on a grassroots level that people can affect their environment locally. Uh, they can also come and visit us uh, or the Ocean River Institute. Uh, but people really need to get active in their communities. So um, we're an entirely grassroots-driven organization. All the board members uh, at Sea Run Brook Trout Coalition uh, are volunteers. We aren't compensated in any way. And uh, I guess my parting words are get, get, get involved locally. Yes. And, and, you know, learn about the situation. So visit the Sea Run Brook Trout Coalition website, and then you'll sound like an intelligent person take your family or friends down to Red Brook Preserve, right? Absolutely. It's a great property, and uh, if you have small kids uh, like I do, uh, my kids always, when I lived in the Boston area, enjoyed going down there. So it's a wonderful property, and we have the Lymans to thank uh, for... Uh, donating it to uh, the trustees of the reservation and uh, selling a portion of it to Mass, wildlife, Mass Fish and Wildlife. Um, there's 600 acres down there uh, that, that has trails all through it along with a beautiful beach. So I encourage people to go down to the Theodore Lyman Reserve uh, of the trustees of the reservation in Wareham and enjoy that beautiful property. And if you get down there in late May or early June, uh, you'll probably be lucky enough to see lady slippers blooming in the pitch pines, which is a, a great sight. Let me see the trout in the river. Uh, you can. Uh, being a wild trout, uh, they're usually not lying out in the open, but you'll see the, the fingerlings in there. And uh, as I said earlier, it is open to catch-and-release fishing with uh, artificial lures only, but it's strictly catch-and-release. And we ask people fish? not to fish down there in... Uh, late October, early November, when the brook trout are spawning. And right. if you actually want to see brook trout in the stream, that's the best time to go down there. Late October, uh, or even more specifically, the first week in November, you can actually go down there and see these brook trout uh, spawning. And they generally spawn over uh, upwellings in the sand and gravel. Uh, and it's a pretty remarkable sight to go down there and, and see 
wild Mike, brook trout out spawning of time, I want to thank stream. Hopper from Sea Run Brook Trout Coalition for uh, Ocean River Shields of Achilles. Thanks for listening. Thank you, Rob. Thanks again for joining us this week on Moyer's Environmental Dialogues. Please tune in for more with Dr. Rob Moyer next Wednesday at 9 a.m. Pacific Time, noon Eastern Time on the Green Living Channel. We'll talk again then. Yeah.